Happy New Year, or almost New Year, as we are celebrating New Year's Eve today. And as you have been with us throughout this 2022 calendar year, we simply have to say thank you. Uh, thank you for your support. Thank you for your love, for your gracious notes, for your emails, for your conversations, for the packages and those care letters that you've sent. Thank you for everything. Thank you for your financial support. Remember that you can uh, support what we do simply by donating uh, to Loma Linda University Church and making sure that uh, you note it's Sabbath School or a media. We, we just are so grateful for your partnership this year. And as we conclude, we would do so with a word of prayer. Join me. God, thank you for a wonderful year. And as we think about new beginnings and as we think about a year that uh, is going to be lived in a hopefully much more normal space, we would pray that you inhabit our future and we give you glory for what you have done in our lives and through our lives over the past 12 months. So thank you for what was, and we're hopeful for what is to come. Uh, we pray in your name. Amen. Well, again, as we typically do, we have our fearless co-host, Joey. Oh, Joey, how are you today? Um, I'm doing well, especially since I'm without fear. <laughs> mm. Oh, it, You know, it's, it's um, the last Sabbath of 2022, and there's... It's just another day, and yet it doesn't feel mm -hmm. like just another day. There's something about the rhythm of a year ending and a new year beginning that makes you a little bit more, well, makes me a little bit nostalgic looking back on the past year mm. and um, so grateful to be doing this Sabbath school with you. I know sometimes people come up to me and, and share that they're blessed by this, and I'm always glad to hear that, but I'm also personally blessed just by having these conversations with you, Miguel. Yeah, so, me too, me too. It's a great antidote, Joey, to the post-Christmas blues. <laughs> um, you spend so much time preparing and planning and thinking and decorating, and that week that we just came out of, that week that uh, is after Christmas, right before New Year's, um, you start kind of noticing uh, if you have a natural tree, it starts to, to get a bit brown, and so the lights have to start coming off. And so there is some nostalgia because the season is shifting. Mm. Uh, but there is also the hope uh, of a new year where we get to rectify some of the mistakes, some of the shortcomings uh, that we have had. And that is, I think, always, always uh, invigorating and exciting. Uh, thank you as well uh, for for being on this journey with us throughout 2022, and we'll see what happens in 2023. Yeah, the good thing we know is that no matter what happens, we have a God who's in control mm -hmm. and who holds us in His hands. That is so true. A God that, as the lesson points out, right, is invested not only in providing us hope, but also invested in creating a new reality, because hope without... Mm -hmm the existence of something to hope for is really simply misplaced excitement. And so yeah. I love the fact that the lesson after we've we've gone on this roller coaster journey looking at death and suffering and God and judgment, 
we end uh, really in this reality, the snapshot, uh, snapshot of a moment mm. where God says, this is what you've been hoping for. Mm. I like how you describe that, that God is involved in creating a new reality for mm-hmm. us. That I hadn't heard, I hadn't thought of heaven that way before, you know, because a lot of times when, when you're growing up, heaven is just this place with um, endless fun and you don't have to worry about pain or suffering or school or <laughs> all of these other things, right? And I don't know if there's going to be school in heaven or not. But there, there's all of these things that, you know, you think that you're going to avoid and what you look forward to. But what you you said, heaven is really a new reality. And that's, that's how it's described in the book of Revelation, mm-hmm. right? A remaking of the old mm-hmm. order into a new order, which is a redefining of reality. It, that's exactly right. And I think this this text that the Bible talks about, uh, which is Revelation 21, starts by making that very point, right? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first he- heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the question I think that a lot of us ask when we're trying to describe and define what heaven is going to look like um, starts to pick up pieces. Uh, there's going to be endless fun. Uh, there's going to be harps, or there's going to be. I I grew up. I still grew up in a time where you would have a country house and a city house, um, and that was all great. But I think the one thing that I'm sure of, without getting lost in the details, is that John describes this place as not having any sea. Mm. Right? He says. Uh, and there was no longer any sea. Mm-hmm. And surely throughout Scripture, the imagery of the sea has played a really, really prominent role, right? Mm-hmm. And so I know what I what I read out of it, um, but I'm interested when you when you hear John saying there's no longer any sea, what what comes to your mind? Yeah, I mean there has been some debate about that concept. Like, what does it mean that there's well? Some people wonder, does that mean there's no body of water, mm-hmm. right? Um, I think back to the the feeling or the emotions that um, an Israelite had with, mm-hmm. with the sea because the sea was often a place of danger, mm-hmm. right? That's where the enemies came from, mm-hmm. was out of the sea. The Philistines had come from the sea. And so there's this, this, this idea that no more sea almost feels like he's saying there's no more war, there's no more mm-hmm. conflict, there's no more... Um, there is a, a feeling of safety and wholeness there. Mm-hmm. That's that's sort of what I read out of it. How, how about you? Know? I think I think that's exactly right. I think uh, not only is was the sea kind of this place of danger, but it it was also a chaotic space. Mm. Um, if you go back all the way to the book of Genesis, right? Yeah. Uh, the sea is represent is a representation of kind of the forces of chaos and yeah. disorder that God is holding back. Mm. And so even before sin, what seems to be happening in the book of Genesis is that God is intentionally holding back chaos, mm-hmm. but chaos is always is ever uh, an ever-present threat. Yeah. I think one of the things that that kind of dawned on me as I was reading this week is that this isn't just a restoration of the world before the fall, before mm. Genesis. Uh, three, 
this is something new. Mm. And the reason why I say that is no longer is the sea kind of being held back by a dome mm. or the firmament, um, wow. as is described in Genesis. Yeah. Chaos does, is no longer present in this reality. So it is wow. a reimagining, as you're mentioning, of, of something that we haven't seen or we haven't experienced. Wow, that is so powerful. I love that was so deep. I hope I hope all of you caught what what Pastor Miguel was um, saying here. You link the echoes. There's you point out there's allusions. There's echoes of Genesis chapter one and two in in uh, Revelation chapter twenty one. But it's not just a remaking of what was before sin. Right. It's actually an improvement. Mm -hmm. It's like creation two mm -hmm. that's happening here because. No longer is sea, the sea and chaos just being held back. It, it no longer mm -hmm. exists, right? The journey that we've gone through as, as a people, as a world, and as a universe, mm -hmm. the sacrifice that, that God has made to make this, this, this restoration has now allowed him to eliminate mm. the chaos of the world. Mm. Is that what you're That's saying? That's exactly what I'm saying. Wow. And I think, I think we go back to kind of how you started our discussion. I am doing well because I no longer have any fear. Mm. It seems like whether you whether you're hearing this uh, as a student of scripture and thinking back to the creation account in Genesis, or you're reading it as someone that spent literally your lifetime gazing at the sea, mm. uh, trying to envision. Uh, threats coming from the ocean, or if you're John, right, sitting, and we both have been in Patmos, mm -hmm. and you look out uh, where tradition says that John wrote Revelation from, and all you can see is sea. Mm -hmm. And it's not just chaos, it's not just danger, it also is separation, right? It's yeah. the separation from this pastor and his congregation. Mm -hmm. um, so there's there's just so much wealth in, in that imagery of sea. But I think uh, what really stuck with me is what you said at the beginning. What, whatever your particular way of reading that symbol is, what what remains true is that there is no longer any fear. Mm. And I'm, I'm curious about what life looks like if, if one could live it without fear. Yeah. You know, beyond just the superficial elements of heaven as a place where, you know, there's no hunger and no no pain, and and I say superficial not to minimize those things, but just those those um, surface level physical manifestations of what heaven is, it's hard. It's hard for me to picture heaven, mm -hmm. and I think part of it is, is that. There is no frame of reference for heaven on mm. earth, right? There, it's it's very hard to picture what it's like because, I mean, even Hollywood struggles with this mm -hmm. when they talk about heaven because all of our excitement, our energy, it comes from a sense of tension and conflict, right? There is no story out there where everything is great all the time. Nobody writes a book like right. that. There's always a tension. There's mm -hmm. always a challenge. There's always something that they face. So thinking about a place with no conflict almost feels like thinking about a place that's completely boring, mm. right? And that's how heaven has been portrayed many right. times in Hollywood, right, right. that it's just this boring place where you just get bored after a few centuries there, right? There's nothing for you to do, nothing for you to learn. And yet heaven is not that. We know that heaven is not boring. We know heaven is a place of endless 
um, wonder. And yet, we don't know how, it's hard for me to imagine how that, it, that, that actually happens and what that actually looks mm. like. So picturing heaven has often been a struggle for me um, in more of the deeper sense of what, what, what will our lives look like in heaven? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, that's, that's just really well stated. I, I think you're right. I think uh, from the moment you're a child to the moment you are uh, an adult and even uh, an older adult, the image that you get of heaven um, becomes kind of monotonous. Mm-hmm. And we don't really talk that much about heaven. We talk a lot about what's going to happen before heaven. And we're going to talk, we talk a lot about what happens you know, during the ultimate uh, selection process where people say, okay, this is who God truly is. We, mm. we spent a lot of time talking about that. But what happens on the other side of eternity um, really doesn't, it doesn't spark our imagination because we, we are uncomfortable with, with this idea of, as you're saying, a place that is without conflict. Mm. I think for me, one of, one of the things that, that I started to do, um, particularly this week as I was just wrestling with, with this idea of heaven, was just focus on, on the notion of what does it mean to live life without the constant pressure mm. um, that, that fear causes upon yeah. my decisions um how much and i i i really started to introspectively think about how many experiences mm. i've missed out on or how many risks that would have led to really interesting journeys i decided to forego because i was afraid mm. um and i wonder if Fear isn't something, mm. fear is really helpful in keeping us safe, but it's also damaging and limiting our potential. Mm. And I think that's one of the things that, that I look forward uh, when we're talking about heaven. It's not that I'm not going to have new experiences. It's not mm. that I'm not going to learn anything. It's not that I'm not going to grow. It's that my learning and my growth and my ever-expanding reservoir of experiences and emotions is going to not be thwarted by fear. Mm. So heaven is where you get to live out your your potential as God intended it to be. Wow, that's powerful. So a taste of heaven is to live without fear, Mm. this idea that fear. And really, fear does, as you said, it it, it can be a helpful emotion, but at times it it short circuits. Mm learning and short circuits good relationships and short circuits are our, our um our process of living a healthy life and makes us to be re- very reactive in in how we respond to situations so wow what a powerful way to map, to picture what heaven is the the absence of fear mm-hmm. the absence of feeling unsafe and the confident confidence that god that you are surrounded and you are protected by the love of God. Mm. That's so powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think it's precisely because of what you're talking about, right? It is this place where you experience the ultimate in 
feeling the presence of God. Mm. And that ultimately has always been God's plan for us. Mm. So when, uh, when, when John writes that he hears a loud voice from heaven saying, mm. uh, look, God's dwelling place is now among his people and mm. they will dwell with him, with them and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and he will be their God. Isn't that what he's, what he's talking about? Wow. He's talking about this, this ultimate in connection where the whole history of God's life in relationship with human beings reaches its maximum expression mm. Um, and so in the presence, in the full presence of God, there cannot be fear. Mm -hmm. There cannot be doubt. Uh, there can only be joy and growth and opportunity and expansion. And so wow. to say we are finally dwelling in the presence of God is to say that uh, as God's presence engulfs us, all of these things kind of begin to wean away from yeah. our experience. I love that. The idea that the presence of God casts out fear mm -hmm. And that imagery is also present in Reve Revelation chapter 22, verse 5, where he talks about how there will be no more night mm -hmm. and they will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord will give them light mm -hmm. and they will reign forever mm -hmm. and ever. So this idea that he banishes darkness mm -hmm. from our presence by his presence because he is the light. That's, that's so powerful. Yeah. And that's why I've often, as I've studied this concept of heaven more and more, I'm coming to the realization that heaven isn't primarily about a place. Mm -hmm. Heaven is about a person, mm -hmm. the person of God. Mm. Heaven, what makes heaven heavenly is the presence of mm. God. Because if you take God out of the equation, what you do, what you have is just another nice place that humans will come and ruin, mm -hmm. right? But the presence of God, which casts out fear, which which cash, which banishes evil and death and destruction that is what makes heaven heavenly and so heaven primarily is about being close to god and that's been the dream right mm -hmm. i mean you are we've talked about the sanctuary mm -hmm. and the dream of the sanctuary was that god would dwell among his people and they would be his people and they would he would they would be he would be their god and that's exactly what happens in revelation chapter 21 and 22 God is dwelling among his people again, and they are one again, mm -hmm. and his presence casts out fear. Wow, that's, yeah, so, so you see all this, this imagery then beginning to disappear, both in Revelation 21 and 22, right? Mm -hmm. You don't have sea, you don't have night, you don't have darkness, and then you don't have the ultimate expression of the absence of the God of life, which is, which is death, right? Mm -hmm. Uh Death cannot exist in the presence of the one who gives life and gives life mm. everlasting. Wow. And so it is all these symbols that have uh, been used throughout Scripture in, in, opposition to God, in opposition and opposition to God beginning to disappear and fade away because God's presence mm. is so all-encompassing. What I find really, really powerful, though, is that throughout uh, this ultimate uh, description of God's victory mm -hmm. over these symbols, there is there's never the the idea of strength in the way that human beings understand strength, mm -hmm. right? Strength that 
uh, that overwhelms people or that overwhelms uh, systems and structures. What there is is simply the fact that these systems and people and structures and symbols just start to crumble because mm-hmm. God's God's presence is is overwhelming, mm-hmm. and so he, God overwhelms death mm-hmm. and darkness and mourning and weeping and the sea with His presence. Mm-hmm. And I I often think mm-hmm. that part part of the problem with modern modern Christianity is that we have a deficit experientially of what it means to dwell and live in the presence of God. Mm. And so then you have all these these things begin to creep up in the life of people who claim Jesus or in the Mm. life of communities who claim to follow Jesus, but are still operating by fear and uh, where there's weeping and abuse and darkness and the sea. All of these things, I think, occur not just uh, because of the brokenness of the world we live in, but they also occur because of our inability to simply allow God to overwhelm us with his presence. Hmm. Wow. And do you think because we have that approach to power and to, to strength, that we have those concepts of that we sort of take on almost not to be dramatic overly dramatic but like satanic ways of Mm. operating where we feel like we need to overwhelm um evil Mm -hmm. um with the strength Mm -hmm. of good yeah and and really take that that verse and twist it Mm -hmm. to a certain extent so that it means that we overcome it through power Mm -hmm. and through the conventions that we have um, the tools that that the world gives us and and um, use power in a way that is manipulative mm. and violent mm. in order to accomplish our our, our yeah. goals yeah and I think that's that's one of the things I appreciate the the most of kind of some some more modern um, or contemporary takes on the book of Revelation. Mm. Um, a lot of people uh, outside of our faith family have struggled with Revelation a lot because it seems to depart from the picture of Jesus that's painted in the Gospels, right? Mm-hmm. In the Gospels, Jesus is painted as this meek, uh, selfless servant. Mm-hmm. And in Revelation, you have kind of Jesus riding a horse and slaying people and having blood reach the brittle uh, of uh, the bridle of, of the horses. Um, and so it seems like it's it's kind of this almost jolting difference between the mm. Prince of Peace and and this king uh, that that has come to to enact war against against the false, false prophet and against the beast, um, but and, and against the Antichrist. But really, if you read carefully, there is kind of yes, there is this this idea of of blood and violence and war within Revelation, but it's not it's not done through the mean, and it's not done 
through the means that we typically relate with these things. In mm. other words, it's not through the sword. It's not through uh, armies. It's. I think John is very nuanced in how he presents it because mm. it's almost as if God simply shows up mm. and that's enough. Mm. Um, and everything else that happens kind of happens because nothing can resist this, just the presence and uh, the presence and the power of a God who, who shows up. Mm. And I think we, when we fail to realize that God won't just show up in the end, at the end of human history, that God shows up here and now, mm. um, we tend to take a, an approach that it, that might be a bit violent mm. or or that might uh, be exploitative because we don't trust God. And really the reason why we do that is we just, we don't trust that God's going to show up. Mm. Wow. So with God, even though God has strength, he shows up with strength in a different way mm -hmm. than we typically think of. And sometimes when we don't trust God's strength, mm -hmm. you're saying we, we use these other means, sort of like Jacob mm -hmm. used his own manipulation mm -hmm. and planning to try to get his way when he thought God wasn't going to show up for him and mm -hmm. give him the birthright that he had promised him. Um, in these ways where we don't, where Israel trusts in Egypt and goes to Egypt right. and asks Egypt and the Egyptian armies and strength to save them rather than relying on the God of strength to, mm -hmm. to, to save them. So all of these means where we start to trust in human ways of strength mm -hmm. instead of trusting in God's strength when he just shows up. Yeah. And, and, and the question then people ask is, well, well how does God show up? Mm. And I, <laughs> I love the imagery that John paints in Revelation because it's, it's again paradoxical, right? The way in which God shows up is 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 as a lamb. Mm. And when you think about strong animals, that's not the first one <laughs> that comes to mind. Mm. But this lamb possesses a strength that mm. is unlike any other strength. So much so that when you hear the lamb, what you actually hear is a lion. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's but it's still a lamb that shows up. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of this, this yeah. juxtaposition because I think John wants to make the point clear mm -hmm. that the way God shows up and the way God exhibits strength is completely different from the way we show up or we exhibit strength. Yeah, that reminds me a lot of um, how you brought one of your um, professors, one of mm. your teachers from your program to, to come and share with our team. And I love what she said about the integration of lion and mm -hmm. lamb that's found in scripture. So what you're saying is this is a lion-like lamb mm -hmm. that shows up. And when you see Jesus, you see that. You mm -hmm. see that even in his meekest, he's not weak. Mm -hmm. He is strong in his meekness, right? He's humble, but he there is a strength there that you admire. When he's before Pilate, he's before, he is humble. He, he is going as a sacrificial mm -hmm. lamb to the slaughter, and yet you can't help admire his strength, even in the midst of that. Mm -hmm. And even when he is in the temple and he's casting out these people, the people who are who are who are buying and selling and 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 taking over a space that leaves no room for for outsiders to come in. Right, they're set up in the Gentile court, so he's casting them out. But even in the midst of that. What you see at the very next thing is that he's welcoming children. Yeah. 
Yeah, right? that's a beautiful scene. So there is this, like, his lion is lamb-like, and Ooh. his lamb is lion-like. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what you seem to be yeah. saying is a lot of time when a lot of times when we use power and strength, we divorce the lamb from the lion and just use the lion's strength. And mm -hmm. as, as a result, it doesn't have the same effect that Jesus's mm -hmm. lamb-like lioness mm -hmm. comes. I love the fact that what you're saying is you need to live into that juxtaposition because if you don't understand who God is, and not that you fully will ever understand who God is, but you can at least try to comprehend how God operates. Mm -hmm. If you can't do that, then you're not going to understand heaven. Mm -hmm. Because as you were saying, heaven mm -hmm. is just going to be this place where you go. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, the same problems that we have here are going to, are going to creep up in heaven. Mm -hmm. And so I think <laughs> one of the things that that you find John trying to do is he's trying to say, look, this is who God is, right? God's full strength is shown in his weakness. Mm -hmm. God's control wow. is shown in his capacity to, to give you freedom. Mm -hmm. God, that is what it means to make all things new, mm -hmm. as John will say. The old order operates in, in these ways that, that can't hold paradox, but God mm. uh, allows us to kind of live in uh, into, this, into this new paradox. And so I think it's, it's really important that we understand that even discipline, right, has to be understood paradoxically. Mm. So one of the kind of basic principles in family systems is that in order to discipline someone, you must be present, mm -hmm. right? That's why parents get to can discipline their children. Because for discipline to work, there needs to be an understanding that the person disciplining you loves you. Mm -hmm. If you don't have that understanding, mm -hmm. then it's not discipline, it's abuse. Mm -hmm. And so what makes the wow. difference where the line is, dri is drawn between discipline and abuse is how convinced am I as the person being disciplined that the person disciplining me loves me? Wow. That's, and so I think that is, is what we need to understand, that even this idea, and we were talking last week about the judgment, even that has to be understood paradoxically. And even that has to be understood in the light of this idea that, hey, God loves me, and this is done from that perspective. Wow, that's so powerful, what you said about discipline, that at the heart, for discipline to really work, there has to be an understanding of love. The person being disciplined has to understand that this person loves me. And that's powerful because a lot of times, at least in the secular world, we've we've just focused on the form mm -hmm. of discipline, right? And said, well, there's certain forms of discipline mm -hmm. that are no longer appropriate, right? We, we've said that. We've said these are lines that you... And I'm not saying that that's, that's not good, that there aren't some lines that we have to draw. But what you're saying is so powerful because even if we draw those lines, even if we're saying we're on the right side of that line, mm -hmm. still, if there's no love, the discipline won't mm -hmm. be... An under, at least an understanding of love 
there won't be there won't be an effective form of discipline. We have to discipline out of love mm. and and the person being disciplined has to experience the love. It's not just me as the discipliner thinking, well, I love them and so I'm doing this. They have to also experience yeah. love from that. Right. And they have to know that you love them. Mm. And I think a really good analogy is just think of a church. Mm. Uh, think about uh, a lot of <laughs> friends out there that wish and they say, I wish the church could take a position on X issue and just call. We we hear this a lot, right? We need to call sin by sin's name. Mm. So we're good at drawing those lines that mm. you're talking about. Mm. But if the only time that the church manifests itself in someone's life is is to remind them of the lines that they are crossing and that they shouldn't cross, to mm. use a term that is commonly uh, preferred when we just show up to say we are calling sin by sin's name mm. it's not spiritual discipline it's spiritual abuse because mm. we haven't been present we haven't earned mm. the relational permission and authority from the people we are trying to help mm. to discipline them mm. and so i think god is saying look i've lived with you my for the history of the universe, and now I'm going to live with you, uh, and my presence is going to be overwhelming. And so this is how I earn mm. uh, whatever a spiritual authority or whatever right I have, I have earned because I have gone through the messy, messy and painful process of intimacy. And intimacy is always messy and problematic and painful sometimes but god has done that and he's proven time and time again that um that's how that's how he operates wow wow yeah it's so true that i i love how you said that we have to earn the right in order to discipline we have to earn the right to speak truth into someone's mm -hmm. life now, Henry Cloud, Dr. Henry Cloud talks about this idea of grace and truth, mm -hmm. that love has on both sides of both grace and mm -hmm. truth, that you give people grace and caring, and you also speak truth into their life. But he always says, grace has to come first. Mm -hmm. You don't lead with truth because mm -hmm. you haven't earned the right to speak truth exactly. unless until you've offered grace, exactly. right? And, and that makes so much sense, what you're saying, that people have to understand that we care way before they understand we have or they give us the permission to speak truth in their mm -hmm. lives and a lot of times at least in in society christians have sometimes spoken truth too early it's not that we shouldn't speak truth but we haven't we haven't taken those opportunities to show care mm -hmm. to show love to earn the right in our societies in our communities to speak truth into people's lives and because when we don't, when we don't do that which you're talking about, when you don't go through that process of leading with grace, what you create is two, is, is a culture that has two prominent characteristics. Mm. It's fear-based, right? Mm. So if I am always leading with truth, what I'm going to end up creating is relationships or cultures that are that are fear oriented and then culture in any culture that is fear oriented 
is going to sway towards deceit. Mm. Now, have that in mind as you think about something that we've often, in connection with this idea of heaven, that we often have um, kind of turned to or cast a, a light upon. So Revelation 21, right? God said, God leads with grace. He says, no more sea, mm. no more tears, no more death. My dwelling place is among my people, and mm. I will be their God. They will be my people. My presence is overwhelming. Mm. And then, verse 8. Mm. Right? The problem is when we talk about heaven, we start with verse 8. Mm. And then we move to all the other stuff. Yeah. But notice that the way in which uh, Revelation 21 is constructed, you lead with grace, mm. and then you have... But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolatries, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Mm. Now, what do all these people have in common? As I was kind of thinking about this idea that, that you were sharing, right? You lead with grace, and then you have truth. What all these people have in common is... That they that there is a sense of deceptiveness in the practices that they are mm. that they are uh, engaged in. So obviously, liars. Well, that's overtly being deception deceptive. Mm. But think about what 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 practicing magic arts or what idolatry is. Mm. It isn't simply idolatry or magic arts. A cheap copy mm. of the real presence of God that is coming to overwhelm you. Wow. So there is a there is a tinge of of deceit there. And mm. then you have the cowardly. Well, aren't you deceiving yourself if you're cowardly? Because mm. if you're in the presence of God, we've we spent uh, quite a bit of time uh, laying out how in the presence of God there can be no fear. Yeah. And so, and then you have the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral. Those, uh, and so these three, these three groups, in their practices, they haven't found healthy outlets for their anger. And mm. so, what what I think is is happening is you're deceiving yourself uh, in believing that resolution or pleasure can come through you. So. Mm sexual immorality um, or or murder or, or vileness of all type. That is me ultimately being the arbiter of what is good. And when I think I can do that, then I'm deceiving myself. Mm. But, that, but God doesn't lead with saying these are the people who are going to be left out. God yeah. is saying... If you can if you can understand that in my presence yeah. all things become clear, mm. then you don't have to worry about it. Wow. It's only when you try to be the arbiter of truth, you try to define what is good, you try to become judge, jury, or, or and executioner, you try to create God, you try to have power. It is in the it is it is only when you attempt to do that in your inability to simply let God overwhelm you that actually self where you actually self-select out. Wow. It's interesting how you bind these these different various um, concepts together under this heading of deception because um, 
throughout the book of Revelation, deception mm-hmm. is a theme, right. right? Counterfeit religion, Babylon, deception, all of these things are big themes. And even for John, John in his writings, truth is a big mm-hmm. central theme of mm-hmm. his. And so this counterfeit truth and deception, again, at the end of time, it comes to a head. Mm-hmm. And you're saying that God's truth at this point finally overwhelms mm-hmm. the deception and that's cast into the the fiery lake of burning sulfur and it, that experiences a final death which yeah. is the second death and i think it, it would help us to start to stop thinking about this in terms of people mm-hmm. and to start thinking about it in terms of principles or yeah. ideas right which I think is would be so much more helpful to understand mm-hmm. what God, what John is trying to do, and what God is trying to do. Because often when we think about murder, we think about the person uh, sitting in death row. We say that person's not going. Mm-hmm. When we think about sexual immorality, we think about our neighbor who's having an affair. Mm-hmm. When we think about uh, the people who practice magical arts, we think about those engaged in what the lesson calls mm-hmm. end time deceptions. And we're not going to advocate or attempt to justify any of these behaviors. But John isn't thinking about people, mm-hmm. right? Because if he were, it'd be really easy to, I mean, it would it would have been really easy to say, Roman citizens, because they're, of their sexual immorality or, uh, immorality, are not going to go to heaven. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vespasian, because of his... Uh, atrocities and violence not gonna go to heaven right it'd be really easy to just start thinking in terms of people but john doesn't do that john thinks about those people that are cast those those things that are cast into the lake of fire as principles and ideas and behaviors and so really what god is doing at the end i think is eliminating uh any type of principle that stands in opposition to truth, as you're mentioning, and then any time of any type of behavior that stems out of uh, believing in this prin- in these principles that stand oppositionally to truth. Wow. So is that connected to this concept that God hates the sin but mm. loves the sin? Yeah. Yeah. Why yeah. is that so important? Why is it so important for us to hold on to that that idea that God hates sin but loves sinners? What difference does that make for us in how we approach people? And yeah, well, I think I think I think we're going to be really uh, clear and in, in complete agreement on this, right? Mm. The reason why it matters first and foremost is practically because I'm a sinner. Yeah, and so mm. yeah, I am all these things, right? <laughs> wow. I this is me. Mm. Um, I've you know when I when I think about uh, the these these people that aren't that these when I think about these behaviors I should say that cast people into the lake of fire I see myself mm-hmm. uh, because I'm a coward. Mm-hmm. But yet, even in spite of my cowardness, cowardliness, God is saying, "Hey, I want you to experience the overwhelming presence of my grace." Mm-hmm. And because I have then sub- subjected my life to that experience, mm. um, even amidst moments of cowardliness, mm-hmm. um, I, 
I have assurance. Mm-hmm. I can look at the future and say, I know, I know where I'm going to be. I know where my where my uh, story is going to con- to continue. If that's good enough for me, then it it, it ought to be. I I ought then to realize that that possibility is present not just for me, but for um, the person sitting on death row mm. and my neighbor that's having the affair and um, the people that are practicing end time deceptions mm. and the liars and and all these other these other characters. Wow. So this shouldn't create an us versus them dynamic because right. this is all of us. Because we are them and they are us. Yeah. Mm. And what God does for us, all of us, is that he casts out fear. Mm-hmm. He doesn't cast out the fearful. Mm-hmm. He embraces the fearful mm. and casts out their fear so that they can they can then live in this new earth and new heaven where our reality mm-hmm. has been completely transformed and and we we are his people and he is our God. Mm. I want to print that on a t-shirt. He casts out the fear not the fearful mm. that is that is brilliantly said and i think i think that then allows you to to just look at the prospect of heaven mm. with with some expectation yeah. rather rather than uh than some trepidation and that i think is a is a wholly new uh way of of thinking about the future and what is to come because you're saying God is God is wise enough and I mean ultimately it makes sense right Joey yeah. none of us judge each other based on on a moment mm-hmm. right if we did we we all have done some, some pretty terrible things and if all I was was who I am at at my lowest moment then Obviously, I, there's no hope for me. Mm. But God, God chooses to look at us uh, in our in our best and at our best, because He chooses to look at us uh, as He dwells within in us, and God says, "Yeah, you you you're not there yet." But you don't need to be afraid because we'll get there. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the grace of God, mm-hmm. right? The grace of God that covers the multitude of sins, mm. right? That He doesn't He doesn't look at our at us at our worst. He looks at us at His best, mm-hmm. right? When He sees us, He sees Jesus on the mm-hmm. cross dying for our sins. We He sees the white robe that Jesus put places mm-hmm. on us, and says, "That's not that's not who you are at your worst." but I will get you there, mm-hmm. right? I'll get you to the place where you're just like Jesus. And that is such a powerful, powerful imagery. I I love how the lesson did weave that concept in there that it, did. He, it doesn't just, God doesn't just leave us in our sin, mm-hmm. sinful state because heaven, like you said, if heaven is full of people in their sinful state, it's not going to be heaven mm-hmm. very long. But the presence of God casts out. Mm-hmm. That That's the idea that all of this, all of this stuff that the the cowardliness, the sexual immorality, the 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 idolatry, the lying, the, everything that's broken inside of us gets cast out by the presence of God, and mm. that's 
what you've helped me do is help me to appreciate heaven even more. Mm. You know, I I began, we began this, this talk by talking about how heaven is sometimes hard to grasp and what it will be like. But if heaven is just a, uh, the presence of God that casts out my fear and makes me, makes me not just the best version of me, but the best version of him. Mm. Oh, that's a, that's a powerful thing that I'm looking forward yeah. to. And the, and the beauty is then that you can start experiencing it today. Yeah. Yeah. Why don't you pray one last time in the year 2022? Let's bow our heads for prayer. Our good and gracious God, we want to thank you, first of all, for this journey of the past year. There has been ups, there's been downs, as all of us um, have experienced. There's been challenges, illness, loss, sickness. There's also been joy and rejoicing and celebration and hope. And yet all, through all of it, you cover us with uh, an immense amount of grace, even as you speak truth into our lives, so that we can become people who are not just heaven-bound, but heavenly. Make us yeah. more like you is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So may you experience his presence in the year 2023 is our hope and our prayer. We'll see you next year. Mm -hmm.